I don't know how many of you watch TV anymore. Uh, now that uh, we have uh, Disney Plus and Apple Plus and Netflix and Hulu and HBO and go down the list. Uh, we have access to so much amazing programming. But there is one program on television these days that I think is provocatively appropriate to our conversation today, and it is the television program entitled God Friended Me. How many of you are familiar with that one? I love that one um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, for those not familiar with it, it is the uh, story of a uh, pretty outspoken atheist by the name of Miles who finds himself suddenly contacted by someone uh, alleged to be God himself, speaking to Miles of all people. And Miles, out of both skepticism and some degree of curiosity, decides to accept the friend request and is then led on a series of escapades and adventures and encounters that leads him into contact with all kinds of people he might never otherwise have encountered in life and invites him into experiences of learning and of influence that are of a far greater blessing than Miles could ever even have imagined when he started out responding to the friend request. I love the story, though the theology may be haywire at moments because it expresses something I think significant about our time. We live in an era, as many of you know, where an increasing number of people declare themselves as nuns when it comes to the religious box. They're just not, they don't do the religious belief thing. And where many other people have fled traditional churches or organizations, religious organizations, feeling that they're too tainted, too bureaucratic or corrupt. Where many folks uh, proudly declare themselves spiritual but not religious. Some of us in this room probably feel a little like that at times. And yet, despite that reality of our time, there still remember, remains, as programs like God Friended Me suggest, this, this persevering kind of, of feeling, this persevering sort of hope, I guess you'd have to say, that, that maybe there could be a God who actually knew us by name, who would care about our detail and drama, who would want to see our lives go better than they already are, who would want to actually use us to help bring about a better kind of life for other people. And this, I think, this hope remains one of the deepest, uh, even if buried in many ways, deepest longings and aspirations, even in the midst of our increasingly secular and lonely age. That longing, I think, to know God in this way is something that extends even beyond those particular desires I've just described. Uh, Brian Wilkerson, a, a pastor of our time, describes going to see A-list uh, actor Matt Damon in, a, in what turned out to be, in, in Wilkerson's view, a B-list movie, though I've heard very good reports from others about this, a movie called Hereafter. Maybe you have seen that one. In the movie Hereafter, Damon's character has been gifted with psychic abilities, the capacity to communicate beyond the doorway of death to the other side. And in one particularly memorable scene, uh, he has been approached by a, a twin who has lost his twin brother in a tragic way and wants desperately to connect again with this departed loved one. And Damon succeeds in making a connection with the other side. 
and goes about asking questions that the twin brother has, but which frankly are questions more than the twin brother. Maybe a lot of us have. He asks the one on the other side, what's it like there for you? Can I come and join you there? What should I be doing now on this side in view of what's there on that side? And Brian Wilkerson, who is uh, attending this movie, uh, writes this. He says, as the scene is unfolding up on the screen, I turned and I looked around the theater, which was full, and I realized you couldn't hear a pin drop. I mean, everybody is completely glued in to the screen. They are not munching popcorn. They are not drinking out of their cups. They are totally engaged with this this questioning that is reaching out to the beyond. And it hits me, says Wilkerson, they want to know too, what's it like on the other side? Will we get there someday? What should we be doing here in the meantime in view of what it's like there? They wanted to know so very badly they were willing to think that maybe even a B-movie might have answers for them. There is this deep longing, this thirst within all of us for what I'm gonna call a knowledge of God. To know a God who sees us, who knows us by name, who cares for us, who befriends us, who provides for us even beyond the doorway of death itself. And some who hear of this kind of aspiration Tell us to just get content eating our popcorn and drinking our slushy because we'll never get that knowledge. Such knowledge, some will say, is absolutely impossible for human beings. Even if they will admit the possible existence of some being, some ultimate intelligence or power that brought the universe into being and holds it together, it is impossible to think we could know that being. Any being who could create and, and hold together and encompass the, 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 the infinity and the complexity of the world and universe we've been able to see just with our telescopes and our microscopes has to understand that any being that could do something like that would be somebody we could never hope to really grasp. It would be like a mere microbe understanding the mind of Mozart. It's not gonna happen. There's no way. Others will point to the famous uh, proverb of the blind man touching an elephant. Each religion or person maybe touches a little piece of the elephant, all describing it in their own terms, but nobody sees the whole picture. All of us at best have only a tiny part of the knowledge of God. I like the microbe to Mozart analogy. I think it, it sparks an appropriate kind of humility when it comes to talking about God. Always been amused by the elephant analogy. It seems uh, like a good one on one level. It's also a, 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 a vision that gives us some humility, although it always has struck me that if you know that somebody is only touching a part of the elephant, you must know something about the whole elephant. You must have in your mind, somewhere inside of you, some picture of what the wholeness of the elephant would look like to know that that religion only has a piece of it. And I think that some people do. In fact, I might say I think a lot of people do have some sense of the wholeness of, of what God would be like. 
Uh, it's a little bit like um, these DNA tests that are out there these days. You know, 23andMe that will, you send in some saliva or some, some something from the inside of your mouth and they'll, they'll trace your DNA all the way back, you know, to your ancestors, maybe all the way back to the very first human beings. I think there is in people this, this imprint, this knowledge, this vestigial memory in a sense of an encounter with a God that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the species. This is the story the Bible tells. The Bible says there was a time when human beings had a knowledge of God. There was a, a time when human beings walked with God and talked with God. There's this wonderful poetic image in the stories we read at the start of Genesis of human beings living in a garden with God. They know who God is. They know how God feels about them. They know what he has instructed them to do to keep their relationship with him going strong, their connection with each other going well, their uh, relationship with the garden that they're meant to steward working the way it's supposed to. They have this knowledge, human beings do, and there's no fear of tomorrow in Eden. There's no hunger or thirst, no despair or death, no worrying about whether I will be find, discovered as inadequate or rejected by other people. On the contrary, knowing God, knowing him and being known by him leads to a state of peace and hope. Ancestors, were told, lived naked and unafraid, naked and unashamed. Now I wanna pause for just a moment on that word naked because it's such a fun word. No, that's not the only reason. I wanna pause there because it is a richly important detail in the story of Genesis. The Hebrew word da'ath is the Hebrew word that gets rendered as the English word knowledge. And when we read our way through the Old and the New Testament and we're, we're hearing knowledge of God spoken of and sometimes even knowledge of people spoken of, it's this same Hebrew word. That word da'ath is, is a definition of the word knowledge or a way of knowing that is different from the way we in our Greco-Roman philosophical framework, the one we didn't even know we have, but we've, we've just imbibed through Western civilization. That understanding of knowing is far more than a cognitive kind of knowledge. Da'ath, or knowledge in the Hebrew understanding, is rather an interpenetrating kind of knowledge. It is, it is a tremendously intimate, life-changing kind of knowledge for which the closest uh, physical analogy is actually intercourse. And the Bible actually uses the word that way. When the King James Version of the Bible describes that level of intimacy, supreme intimacy between human beings, it often describes that intimacy using the word knowledge instead of the word sex. Thus we're told in the New Testament, this is where we circle back to the story of Christmas, that after hearing from an angel that Mary, his espoused, was pregnant, I quote, Joseph knew her not. It didn't mean he didn't recognize her. It means he did not have knowledge of her in this deeper kind of way. 
Joseph knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. But I'm trying to get here, or get to here, in what may seem like this little X-rated version or portion of the message, is that when we talk about having the knowledge of God, we aren't just talking about having an intellectual concept of God. We're not talking about just having a nice acquaintance with God. We're not talking about having a superficial conversation about God. Knowing God in the way that the Bible means it is a soul-shuddering, vulnerability-exposing, relationship-altering, life-filling and overflowing encounter of the richest kind. It means having the most glorious partner for living that this life and even beyond this life could ever uh, supply to the Mileses or the Matt Damons or to the any others of us of this world. The more we truly know God, the more we find ourselves bonded to him, the more we find ourselves wanting to honor him and please him and be with him, and the more we find him fulfilling us in remarkable, almost impossibly amazing kinds of ways. I know that in my own life this has been true. I, I, I see the profound change that God has brought about in my life through my experience of knowing him, the way he has changed my heart, my attitudes, my way of moving through life. If there's any measure of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, self-control, humility, courage, go down the list. If it exists at all in my life, it's because God has put it there. Knowing him has grown that up. It has filled me up, sometimes to overflowing with his nature. When you truly know God, you know this for yourself, it does not take away all of your challenges. It does not make everything easy all of a sudden. Far from that. But if you know God, then you know that somehow in the midst of the mess and the difficulties, there is now a source of hope, of peace. There is something that quiet your, quiets your fears, that gives you perspective, that establishes priorities for you, that helps give you a sense of, of confidence in the future that you would never have did you not know God? The knowledge of God is one of the most precious gifts a person can have. It's why King David of Israel wrote uh, most of the Psalms about the knowledge of God. It's the topic of most of those prayers. It's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, ends his famous love soliloquy by affirming with rapturous delight that there's gonna come a day when we know God fully even as he already fully knows us. The knowledge of God is what made a mere forest that we call Eden into the garden that history calls paradise. It was not because it was just a nice climate. It was not just because there was great vegetation there that it was called paradise. It was paradise because it was the place where men and women knew God and dwelled with God and related with God and connected with God and were filled by God. So what happened? How do we get here? How do we go from this 
picture of people walking naked and unashamed with God and become instead like we're living in an episode of the reality show Naked and Afraid. Any of you seen that one? How did, how did life suddenly become like this, this, this uh, experience where, where characters are running around, spending their days trying to cover up and scavenge and arguing and worrying and restlessly running from here to there, all covered with bug bites and scratches? How did life become like this? You know, it's just, it's crazy. Well, to put it in a nutshell, the Bible says that paradise was lost when Adam and Eve started to care more for knowing something other than God than they did for tending that relationship. The the cascade from grace began when Adam and Eve got fixated on, on knowing, as in consuming and being filled by, the fruit in that particular tree with the fence around it, then they were concerned with knowing the one who made that and who made it all. That's where the problem started, the Bible says. And the cataclysmic result of that shift of focus, or actually a focus from here to there, sends humanity on this descent, and it's a rapid fall from from naked and unashamed into a life of pain and toil, a life of competition and murder, even within families, a life of arrogant tower building and outright wickedness and tribal terrorism. The stories we read from Genesis chapter three or from after that point on could have been ripped from the headlines today because on every single page we're seeing the consequences of what happens when people live with a passion for knowledge of other things, idols, distractions, uh, that can't supply what they need most, that only the knowledge of God can supply. The amazing thing in the midst of this whole story is that God does not just give up on those people. You don't wanna know me? No problem. I'll just find some other planet, some other people, some other race. But God never gives up on restoring the relationship he had at Eden with humanity. When I was uh, in seventh grade, I uh, was approached uh, by a couple of girls in my class uh, who had a book in their hands and they were kind of giggling about this and they wanted me to read this book. So I, they, they passed me this book and I noticed it was sort of a book filled with handwriting and I started to, to read the handwriting and I realized this, was a, this handwriting was from somebody who was speaking of their love for a boy in our class. And I realized the boy was me. And I realized that the pages had not been written by any of these girls showing this to me. It had been written by this plain girl, Pam, across the classroom. And I realized what a moment of betrayal this was, what these friends had done. And it made me very sad and it made me very angry and I threw the book back at them. It turned out Pam had a heart for me She saw me, she saw things about me that I didn't even see about myself. I was not a looker, I was not a great catch. She saw something in me and she wanted a deeper relationship with me. And I I just didn't myself. I'm a seventh grade boy, I I just, I, I was interested in all kinds of things. I wasn't interested in Pam. And so seventh grade went by and even though she would try sometimes to make contact, I was 
not interested. Then eighth grade came, and, and occasionally we'd pass each other, and there'd be furtive looks and so forth, but I was still not interested. Then ninth grade came, and tenth grade went by, and again, we're passing by, we're connecting at various moments, and each time you get some sense that she's still got her hand out, she still sees me, but I do not see her. Eleventh grade comes, I'm at the swimming pool one summer with my best friend Rich, and I look over and I see this woman going by, and I say, who is that? And Rich says to me, that's Pam. She's the captain of the cheerleaders at our school. And I remember going up to her and I said, Pam, hello, I'm Dan. I don't know if you remember me. And we dated for the next year and a half. And she taught me more about friendship between a man and a woman and connection and commitment and she was my first introduction to what a real relationship would look like. She prepared me to one day recognize the goodness of the love of my life, my wife Amy. And I will always be grateful that over those five long years she never stopped seeing me and wanting to, to establish the connection. On an infinitely larger and more important scale, this is the gospel story. This, this is the meaning of, of what happened at Christmas. God never stopped loving those who did not love him back. God just kept reaching out for humanity, even when humanity was too stupid distracted, confused, wayward, sometimes just plain bad. Uh, even after they rejected knowing him, God persevered. He revealed himself again and again to the likes of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He issued uh, invitations to Moses to come and to get to know him and to go uh, in his name to free his people from bondage. He appeared to the wayward uh, children of Israel all through their wandering through the wilderness and he, he showed his power and his care for them and his providence for them and his presence with them in all kinds of dramatic ways and he rescued them when they got in trouble and they would briefly turn towards him and then they'd get distracted again and, and, and they'd get into trouble again and they'd cry out again and God would come back and help them again and it went on like this again and again through the course of many, many centuries and God just didn't give up. He sometimes let them go for a while. They had to find out what it was like to live without him, but he never gave up. He sent prophets to them often, calling his people back into relationship with him, but they would ignore the prophets, they'd reject the prophets, they'd often kill the prophets, and eventually this stubborn, hard-headed people reaped the whirlwind for their complete ignorance of God and their obsession with idols and their nation fell into ruin and into exile and it was just such a terrible mess. And in the midst of one of those terribly messy times, the prophet Isaiah came on behalf of God and, and, and he spoke God's heart again. Now, given how bad it had gotten in Israel, it, it seemed almost impossible that God should still be interested in, in, in the, the chosen people. They were the dozen people. But the prophet says, God is going to do something new. 
Uh, he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the name of the father of King David of Israel. And, and the kingdom under King David was the best Israel ever had it. Uh, because as, as imperfect as David was, he was a man, the scriptures say, after God's own heart. And though he made terrible, horrible mistakes, uh, David repented and kept turning back to God and, and proclaimed God's glory. And, and so the promise that Isaiah makes is that from that, the lineage of David, God is gonna do a new thing. He's gonna send up a shoot from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, on the one that will be the fruit of that branch. The spirit of God will come in power upon this individual. A spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might. And Israel so desperately needed wisdom and understanding and counsel and might to deal with the incredible problems going on in human life. And as we're going to explore further in the weeks to come, Isaiah then foretells the coming of a suffering servant who will reveal God's presence and his plan and demonstrate his power in a way more personal than at any time in history since God walked the forests of Eden with his people. This time, however, God would come to people not through a burning bush, not through a cloud of smoke, not through the voice of a prophet. God was going to come himself in flesh. He was going to show up in the flesh and he would become a Messiah not just for Israel but for everybody. For people of every language, tongue, tribe, and time. He would extend an opportunity to everyone to enter into a soul-shuddering, vulnerability-exposing, life-enhancing, wondrous kind of relationship. He would offer everybody the knowledge of God. On one level, to the people listening to Isaiah, that had to have seemed impossible. It is as outrageous as the thought that God would friend somebody on Facebook or that a microbe would suddenly be given the knowledge of the mind of Mozart or that an elephant surrounded by blind men would suddenly be seen in the totality of who he is as the blindfolds were pulled away. But at the first advent, that is exactly what started to happen. That's what began to unfold. Jesus said, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And if you really know me, says Jesus, if you'll really invest in knowing me, then you will know my Father as well. For I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come learn of me, come dine with me, come do life with me, and let me give you the knowledge of God. There's a scene at the end of the movie, Jerry Maguire, with which I want to close our conversation today that bears, I think, on this topic. 
And if you know the movie at all, you know that the figure, Jerry Maguire, is a rascal, played by Tom Cruise, a guy prone to lots of bad decisions in life. And in this particular moment, Cruise, or rather Jerry, walks into a room and he says hello to Dorothy, who is as dependable and faithful and solid as he is wayward and unpredictable. And Dorothy is played by the, character, by the actress uh, Renee Zellweger. And in this particular scene, uh, Jerry just starts rambling, as he's prone to do. He starts talking, and, and this time he's talking somewhat apologetically. He's, he's repenting of some of the bad decisions and actions of his life, his stupidities and failings. He's stumbling over himself in remorse. Jerry understands, there's a brief instant of, of recognition that he is totally unworthy of Dorothy's love. There is no good reason why she should forgive him or be at all interested in a relationship with him. But then Dorothy does something simply amazing. She simply shushes Jerry. She actually says, shut up. And she says, you had me at hello. You had me at hello. After all that we have done, and all that we have not done in relationship to God's affections for us. After all of the ways that we have poured ourselves into every idol that could be manufactured. After all the times we have ignored his outstretched hand, it seems impossible that God should want us to know him But Jesus is God's way of saying, I've been ready to take you back since you said hello. You've had me since hello. My friends, if you have gotten lost, if you have wandered away, if you've maybe never even known God in a way that you would identify with that idea of knowing, then please just start by saying hello to him today. Hello, God. You know there's this gap between us, but I'd like to see it closed. Just start there. If you feel like you do know God, but you don't know God all that well, Stop by one of the tables outside today. Talk with one of the pastors. Let us help you find a circle or some pathways where you can grow in the knowledge of God. It will change your life. I promise you it will. It won't fix everything for now, but it's gonna make a profound positive difference and through you for others. And if you are already deep in that relationship yourself, please do not keep that to yourself. Don't keep that knowledge to yourself. Find somebody this week who does not have that relationship and talk about what knowing God has meant in your life. Maybe even invite them to be here with you next week or some other circle where they can. Please, don't just sit there. Take some deliberate steps today towards that wonderful coming day, that glorious day when the earth will be as filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Please pray with me.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that at your first advent, you opened the way for us to enter into a renewed relationship with you. We thank you that you've made it possible to know you and to know the Father. But we also humbly recognize that we don't have forever for that. We know that at our death or at your second coming, that door will close. And so today, we step forward. We ask you to forgive our sins, to draw us more deeply into your life, and to use us, Lord, in the lives of others to help them find the blessing of knowing you. For it is in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.